It is 9.30. Time now for the Bible study from St. Paul Lutheran Church in De Pere. Good morning. We welcome you to Bible class here at St. Paul de Pere, and we welcome all those that are joining us on KFUO. A reminder that uh, we are studying the lessons for the coming week, only here at St. Paul's right now we are uh, having a special sermon series, so the lessons are different than those appointed in the lectionary. So we'll share what those are a little later. We're going to start a little differently today. We're going to talk about what is faith. And we're going to give some definition to that before we dive into the lessons themselves. One of the things that's always talked about when we talk about faith is what is the object of our faith? And in the case of the Christian faith, the object of our faith is more important than the faith itself, because the object of our faith is Christ, the gospel, the grace of God. God is gracious to us for Christ's sake. When we say Christ is the object of our faith, we mean Christ pro procured for us the grace of God and conveyed it to us through the gospel. So this is what we believe. That is the gospel, Christ, the grace of God. And we would have none of it without the graciousness of God in sending Christ for us. Faith is relying, is a reliance of the heart on the promises of grace set forth in the gospel. Now, it's very important to distinguish faith and not make it a work. Faith is not a work that saves you. As soon as we introduce the concept that maybe faith is a work, we destroy the gospel. As soon as we talk about faith as a work, we're attributing that as something we do. Faith is not a work. So you can't put faith on a scale. You, you can't say, well, on a scale of 1 to 10, you've got to believe at least at a 6 before you're saved. That's turning faith into a work, something you're trying to achieve. Faith is not a work. It is a reliance of the heart on the promises of God in Christ. Reliance of the heart. Faith is personal. That is, 
the promises of the gospel are applied to you, not to other people, to you by faith. By faith. You can't have faith for another person. And basically what Christ did was he won the forgiveness of sins and life everlasting for everyone on the earth. Whoever has lived or will live. By faith, it is applied to the individual. So faith is personal. It is the apprehension of the promises of the gospel by the intellect and will. Okay, you know them. And here's the important part. The faith is not worked by you. The faith is worked by the Holy Spirit in you. You are not capable of having faith on your own. You hear this all the time when you hear about people being told, make your decision for Christ. You can't. If left to yourself to make a decision for Christ under your own spiritual powers, you will not accept Jesus Christ. You will reject him. The Holy Spirit works faith in us so we can apprehend the promises of the gospel. Okay? We can't do it on our own. That's one of the distinctive things that makes us Lutheran. We do not believe that it is an action of ourselves or our own will to decide to believe in Jesus. It is an action of the Holy Spirit working through the words and the promises of the gospel that work the faith in us. Therefore, if we have the gift of forgiveness and everlasting life, it's all God's doing. We didn't do it. And that's very important. It's very important because if we as sinful people play any role in our salvation, it's subject to failure. Because if it was up to us, we may not have done it right. If it's up to God, he always does it right. Therefore, we can have total confidence in him that he can save us. But we cannot have confidence 
when we play a role in it. Because we are sinful human beings and might mess the whole thing up. So from start to finish, from God's decision to send us a Savior, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, through the creation of faith in us and sustaining us in that faith, all of it is God's work, not ours. Therefore, when we talk about faith, it is a work of God. God allows you to say, my faith, but he did it. You can say, I have faith in Christ. He lets you do that, but he worked it. Okay? It's his work. So those are some things to keep in mind about faith as we begin to talk about the lessons today. And the first lesson we're going to talk about is Genesis 15, verses 1 to 6. Now, a little background on this passage. Previously, in the book of Genesis, there was a war between five kings and four kings. And they carried off Lot, Abram's relative, and Abram went after him. Okay? This account in Genesis 15, 1 to 6, occurs after Abram has rescued Lot in the midst of this war between these kings. After these things, that's the war, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. All right. That's Abram's complaint. All right, God, you keep promising me there's going to be an heir. Where is it? Where is it? Hasn't happened. Abram and Sarah are old. Old, old. Where's the heir? Right now, according to ancient uh, rules and regulations about descendants, the only person that Abram has is a slave who was born in his house. A slave. That's Eleazar. You have given me no offspring. 
and a member of my household will be my heir. And you can simply read that for what it is, Abram's complaining. You have promised me this, and it hasn't happened. All right. Verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. All right? Your very own son. Now, God told Abram, fear not, because many believe that one of Abraham's great fears was after he had to go after Lot and rescue him, he was afraid that God was going to kill his family off. And that's why God assures him, fear not. And then that you're going to have your very own son. Very own son. And then this part of it is not a vision, so to speak, because it actually happened. God could actually take him outside, and he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. So he took him outside, and there wasn't any pollution then, so there were lots of stars, more than you could count. And God showed him the stars and said, so will your offspring be. And then we come to the faith. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, that's a very important verse because Paul picks up on that and literally writes the entire fourth chapter of Romans based on this verse. The entire chapter of Romans 4 is based on this verse. He believed him. He apprehended the promises. He relied in his heart on what God said. And it was counted to him as righteousness. He was right with God by faith. You know, so many people, you know, you got to convince them that many people believe, well, you know, the people in the Old Testament, they were saved by works and we're saved by faith. No, no, no. And we see it here. Abram is saved by faith. And through faith in the Word and the promises of God, he is counted righteous. Same thing with you. Same exact thing with you. When you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, the work that He did for you, 
keeping the law, paying for your sins, those perfect works of Christ are counted as yours. Therefore, because Jesus Christ is righteous, you are declared counted righteous for his sake by faith that God himself worked in you through the promises of the word. So, it was so with Abram, and it is so with each one of us today. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. That's the same way God works today. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are counted right with God for Jesus' sake. All right? Questions about that one? None? All right. Then we'll move on. Hebrews 11, and it's more than 1 to 3. It's also verse 6 and verses 8 to 16. Hebrews 3, 1 to 3, 6 and 8 to 16. Here we have a definition of faith. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. That is heaven. Jesus coming again. That's what our hope is. That's what we haven't seen yet. We hope for it. Now, hope in the Bible is defined differently than the way we use the word hope. When we say, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow so we can see the eclipse, that's a wish. That's a wish. In hope, with hope in the Bible, it's a certainty. The things hoped for are certain because they're based on the promises of God. They're based on the promises of God. So, when it talks about the fact, now faith is the assurance, you see, assurance of things hoped for, and the conviction of things not seen. In other words, the things we will inherit at the close of the age. The things we will inherit at the close of the age. And these things are not seen yet. They are the future acts of God in Christ. The future works of God. And the foundation 
of what we believe is the Word of God. Can we see the Word of God? Well, only as words on a page. But the fact is, the Word of God, we haven't seen the things He's promising yet. The people who have died and gone to heaven, they have. Okay? But we are confident, certain of them, because of God's Word. That is the basis and the root of our faith. Back to the object of faith. We can trust the Word of God. And so, it is on the basis of that that the writer of Hebrews begins to talk. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. All right. Nothing was in existence. When God created the world, he did it, and we use the phrase ex nihilo, from nothing. There was nothing when he started. Nothing. And he did it by his word. His word brought things that didn't exist into being so we could see them. That's what this verse is saying. By the invisible word of God, he brought to be things that we now see. So he said, let there be light, and there was light. said, let there be plants, fruits, trees that bear fruit. There were plants and trees that bear fruit. His word brought into being things that were unseen. You see how he's tying it into the first verse? His word and promises are going to bring into being for you heaven and all you're going to inherit. You can't see it now. You can be confident because God said he was going to do it. And his word brings what you can't see into being. What you can't see into being. I've used this illustration before. God's Word is different than ours. This is a chair. In English, C-H-A-I-R means chair. Those four symbols mean this. When we say chair, we know what is being talked about. God's Word was different. When he says chair, one appears. One shows up. God's word is not symbol. 
God's word is action, which is very comforting because when he says, all who believe in my son will have eternal life, what happens? It's done. So, God's word is totally different than ours. He brings into being that which was not visible before. Now look at verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. That's why the lady that lives next door to you and makes the most wonderful pies in the world is going to hell because she doesn't believe in Jesus Christ. And making pies is certainly good for you, but it is not a good work acceptable to God because it is done without faith. And that's, this passage is the one that teaches us that, okay? She's making great pies, and you're loving it, and it's a blessing from God, but her spiritual welfare is in trouble because she has no faith. And therefore, all she does does not please God. All right, now, we have three examples based on Abraham here. Verse 8, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an, an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Okay? It was an act of faith when Abraham was in Ur of the Chaldees and God suddenly appeared, said, pack up everything and move. And he did it. And he did it. That's faith. He couldn't see it. He couldn't fully understand it. The only reason why he was going was God told him to. And he went. Would you do that? Would you do that? Well, God told me to move to Australia. You pack up and move. This is a remarkable, and he goes through several of these with Abraham. And basically, the book of Hebrews chapter 11 is a rehearsal of the people of God acting in faith. Acting in faith. 
and it gives example after example. It was an act of faith that Mary believed the angel, Gabriel, who said, you're going to to have the Christ. That was an act of faith. We can go through lots of examples where these people were just like us, sinful human beings, and God told them through His Word, and they believed and they followed. It's no easier today. In the midst of a world that we live in today, is it easy to say, I believe in Jesus Christ who died for me and God's going to get me out of all this and take me to heaven? Does the world understand that? The world thinks you're stupid. Following fairy tales. So it's an act of faith that in the midst of a world like this, we believe and we follow. And sometimes we don't think of ourselves like that. I'm no great pillar of faith. But when God comes again and reveals His people in the midst of this world, the world's going to be astonished. Christians of all people were the kings? Christians of all people were the priests? Christians of the world had all the power? But that's what's going to be revealed. The things that haven't been seen. All right, a second Example, verse 9, by faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Okay. He went as in a foreign land. Now let's talk about that a little bit. When you were a foreigner in the land then, you had some real problems. You didn't own any property, and that was everything. So to be a foreigner in the land, you've got to find a place where literally you can pitch a tent. It's not yours. And without being a landowner, you have no real rights in that land. You're a foreigner. And that's what he was. And he went to live in the land of promise. Abraham went to live there. But was it going to be his promised land? That would come later. You see, God has a way of revealing himself over and over again. 
So Abraham goes there and lives in the land that God promises to him and to his descendants. Abraham dies there. He doesn't own the land. The whole family moves to Egypt after Joseph. The land is all of a sudden inhabited by all other kinds of people. God brings them back, and they conquer the land, and it's called the promised land. The land that God was going to give Abraham. But is that the end of the story? No. Because now what is our promised land? Heaven. So now, he used that promised land to show how he kept his promises to them, just like he's going to keep his promises to us and give us eternal life. That's the promised land we are waiting on. Verse for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. That's heaven. Designer and builder is God. All right, then, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. Even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised, therefore... From one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many of the stars of the heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. By faith, Sarah received power to conceive. She believed the promises of God. From one man and him as good as dead. That's a foreshadowing of Christ. One man, as good as dead, and from it become the descendants that are too innumerable to count. It happened through Isaac, but he was the foreshadowing of when it would happen through Christ. And it happened through Christ. He was as good as dead. He was dead in the tomb. And he rose again. God brings forth life from death. Even an old man and his wife, Sarah, Abraham, God brought forth life and descendants. He does the same through his son who was dead and is now alive. We read on. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They didn't see heaven. 
Abraham and Sarah didn't see the promised land when the people went in under Joshua. They were strangers and exiles, and that's exactly what we are. We are strangers and exiles in the world, and we're waiting for what we have been promised but have not yet seen, that God has promised us through His Word. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Is this our home? No, what does the hymn say? Heaven is my home. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return, go back. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. That's our home. God's not ashamed to be called our God because we have put our faith in his word. We are his people. He has worked that in us. So we are his by faith. All right. Cruising right along. Questions? Comments? They, uh, radio audience, they're simply sitting there. I think they're afraid of you. All right, we'll move on to our third lesson, Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. A story we all know, but important teachings here about faith. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman it is that is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. The woman comes to Jesus. She's heard about Jesus. She's heard about what he's done, what he's said. So he comes. 
she comes. The Pharisee prides himself on being right with God. But she knows she's not right with God. So she comes to Jesus in total humility, basically throwing herself on his mercy. in faith, that he will deal kindly with her. It's interesting, the Pharisee eats with Jesus and receives no forgiveness. The Pharisee declares that the woman can't eat with Jesus, and he forgives her. That's what we call the reversal, the great reversal. Things always happen the opposite when you deal with Jesus. All right, so let's look at what he says. He's basically going to insult the Pharisee in his own house. Okay? A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Now, this particular verse is cited in the uh, Lutheran Confessions, in the Apology to the Augsburg Confession, because during the dispute, during the time of the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church used the verse that I just read to say that you are saved by faith and works faith and works. Now let's go on and finish the passage and see if Jesus clarifies what he's saying. But he who has forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. 
Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So Jesus does clarify that. When a person believes in Jesus Christ as Savior, then works follow. The woman believed that Christ would forgive her, and so she did these things believing in him. They were literally her acts of worship of the one she believed in. Her works followed her faith. But it was the faith that saved her. Let me read you this paragraph from the Lutheran Confections. There is a familiar figure of speech called Schenectady by which we sometimes combine cause and effect in the same phrase. Christ says in Luke 7:47, her sins which are many are forgiven because she loved much. But he interprets his own words when he adds, your faith has saved you. Now Christ did not want to say that by her works of love the woman had merited the forgiveness of sins. Therefore he clearly says, your faith has saved you. But faith is that which grasps God's free mercy because of God's word. If anybody denies that this is faith, he utterly misunderstands the nature of faith. And the account here shows what he calls love. The woman came believing that she should seek the forgiveness of sins from Christ. This is the highest way of worshiping Christ. Nothing greater could she ascribe to him. By looking for the forgiveness of sins from him, she truly acknowledged him as the Messiah. Your highest worship every week is that you come to God's house seeking the forgiveness of sins. It's your highest act of worship. your highest act of worship. That honors God more than anything else. It honors God because it says, you have sent me a Savior, and only in Him can I seek forgiveness, and I believe your promise, and I come to your house to receive that forgiveness in word and sacrament. You see, that's why we call it divine service. He is serving you with the forgiveness of sins in word and sacrament. He is serving you. So, when this woman comes, 
She is seeking forgiveness of sins, and that is the highest worship because she believes he can forgive sins. And these are her acts of worship. Your acts of worship are you come to God's house seeking his forgiveness, and when you have received it, you sing his praises, you pray to him, That's our act of praise and worship back to God. But the highest praise is to believe his promise that for Christ's sake, your sins are forgiven. And the greatest act of blasphemy is to believe that you can earn your forgiveness yourselves. God abhors it. To say, I can save myself, is basically saying, God, I can do it without you. We come and seek the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ, just as this woman. This, Jesus did not say, your good works have saved you. Jesus said, your faith has saved you, and your works show that you have faith. That's what he's saying. The works show that you truly have faith in your heart. So this passage is uh, often misunderstood, but truly illustrates what we've been talking about. Faith is the reliance of the heart on the Word of God. Even though we can't see everything He promises, it is that which we believe and hope for. And it's all based on His words to us. So, faith, the object of faith is Christ, that is critical. The basis of our faith is what God says to us, what God says to us. The passage we read this morning, Ephesians, the Word from the apostles and prophets. That's our foundation, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. That puts it in proper order. Okay? Word of God. And the Word of God testifies to Christ. All right. Questions or comments? Yes, bud? Yeah. Well, uh, the question is uh, clarify the quantification of faith. Uh, 
because Jesus says, you know, the disciples say to Jesus, increase our faith, and uh, great is your faith, and uh, ye of little faith. Uh, the key is not to turn it into a work. Now, we all know in our lives, if I were to ask you, how many times in your life do you feel like your faith is weak? You'd say, okay, I know them. I can list them. And then you could say, how many times do you feel like your faith is great? That'd probably be a few less, but you could identify them. All I'm saying is this, it's not the amount of faith you have that saves you. Do you believe or don't you? Everybody's going to have doubts. Everybody's going to have times of weak faith. Do you believe or don't you? If you don't believe, you do not have salvation. If you do believe, and sometimes it's great, and sometimes you're hanging on by your fingernails, but it's still faith, and God still works it, and you will have, uh, God works in you so you have faith, and through that faith you have eternal life. I can't quantify it more than that. Because as soon as you start to quantify it, what do we as human beings tend to do? Oh, I don't have enough. I'm going to have to work harder. You're gone. Because you've just made it something you do. So we have to be careful. Have to be careful. All right. Quick. No, it is not Simon Peter. It is just a Pharisee named Simon. Uh, Peter was not a Pharisee. Uh, this is simply one particular Pharisee named Simon, not Simon Peter. Okay? Quick. Absolutely. Absolutely. The person can come to faith as long as they are alive. No, not after they die. No. Well, after death, uh, there are passages that indicate that after death, uh, God's judgment comes. And it is not a, a waiting period. Uh, when you die, you are judged as a believer or an unbeliever. And it is too late to hope for conversion after death. All right. Let's close. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.
is this has been the Bible class from St. Paul Lutheran Church in the Pier on KFUO, the Messenger of Good News. We're coming up on 1028.